0: too On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible Teaching Ministry of our Senior Pastor Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Been looking for a a few weeks. This is actually our fourth study in this section of the book of Romans. Romans. Uh, As we've been doing, just a series of messages that the Lord put on my heart as I was recovering from uh, shoulder surgery. We'll spend one more Sunday here, next Sunday, Lord willing. Let me read the entire text. It's just a good refresher. So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. If you'll follow along as I begin reading now in verse 18. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. In June in June of 2015, then-President Barack Obama ordered the White House to be illuminated in rainbow colors in celebration of the Supreme Court ruling that legalized same-sex marriage, thus allowing same-sex couples nationwide the right To marry, You probably remember it. I will never forget it. And I remember the, the sick feeling I had in the pit of my stomach as I saw that image on the television. But long before that, since 1970, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or LGBTQ Pride Month, has been celebrated each year in the month of June. Pride Month presents... An opportunity and an obligation to reflect on why our LGBTQ plus community matters, says Joe English, founder of Hope in a Box, a nonprofit that brings inclusive LGBTQ books and curriculums to public schools around the nation. If that's not bad enough, October is Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender history month in the United States. It was first observed in 1994, and October was selected because it coincides with National Coming Out Day on October 11th, and because it's the month of the first march on Washington for lesbian and gay rights in 1979. And so during the months of June and October, we as a nation are celebrating everything that God calls abominable and condemns. In February of this year, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced that he would reverse an order from President Trump and put up pride, pride flags at U.S. embassies around the world. Now, isn't that something to be proud of? So now at every embassy of the United States around the world, we are flying not only the United States flag, but the gay pride flag. At the same time, Blinken also said that he planned to appoint an envoy for the human rights of LGBTQ persons, a position created by Barack Obama in 2015, but wasn't filled during the Trump presidency. Many public libraries across the country have been hosting or participating in what is called Drag Queen Story Hour. The American Library Association believes this is instrumental in creating a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive society. This includes a commitment to combating marginalization and under-representation within the communities served by libraries through increased understanding of the effects of historical exclusion. That's from the American Library Association's website. The library system's youth and family services manager justifies the event this way, saying, we wanted to make sure we cover a wide variety of interests and speak to all members of our community. And in case you don't know what Drag Queen Story Hour is, I mean, it's pretty self-evident, but it's, it's a program or event featuring drag queens in full drag, reading stories to children in in libraries, schools, or bookstores, stories that celebrate, uh, according to their website, the glamorous art of drag. This is to children. I mean, their vision, uh, the Drag Queen Story Hour, it was created by uh, a person in, in San Francisco, and their vision says that we, we envision a world where kids can learn from LGBTQ+, her stories and experiences, to love themselves, celebrate the fabulous diversity in their communities, and stand up for what they believe in and each other. And they have chapters now in 26 states and five foreign countries. In an article by Dr. Peter Jones, I read the following, and I posted this article on the church uh, Facebook page, and I would encourage all of you parents to read it. It's, it's vitally, uh, it's a vitally important article. It just talks about progressivism's attack on our children. But in the article by Dr. Jones, I read the following, uh, the National Sexuality Education Standards, according to the Centers of Disease Control, uh, propose to mid-grade school children in vivid and often pornographic forms that all sex acts are valid except uh, the one which produces pregnancy. So they're legitimizing all forms of sex to our children, and they're doing it uh, in graphic detail. And he gives a list of, of uh, books that are sexually explicit books that are for toddlers to teens, Uh, that appear on school reading lists on the subject of homosexuality and transgenderism. And I'm not going to read the books, because to explain what the title means is almost pornographic in itself. From Karen England at the Capital Resource Institute, and all of you parents who have children in public school, I would highly recommend... Uh, that you get on the Capital Resource Institute mailing list because they stay on top of all of this. And they have resources there for parents. And they tell you how you can opt your children out. And they have many other resources available. But I received this just the other day from Capital Resource Institute. It says, just days ago, parents at an Olathe Kansas high school discovered that students in a 10th grade class were assigned a worksheet titled The Gender Unicorn, offered by Trans Student Educational Resources, which asked them to declare their gender identity, gender expression, sex at birth, and if they're physically and emotionally attracted to men, women, or other genders. The district stated that this assignment is not part of the approved curriculum. Yet, the very same thing happened in this Human Growth and Development class in February. It continues, this repeated incident illustrates an urgent nationwide need for parents to get involved now. District administrators are leading from behind. Rogue teachers feel free to interject their own agendas, and there is little accountability for such behavior in the classroom. Districts throughout California are using the gender unicorn Worksheet as well as a myriad of adult themed curriculum in high school, middle school, and even elementary classrooms. And she says parents must take preemptive action now to protect their children from harmful and invasive CSE material. I mean, that goes without saying. And I could go on and on and on uh, describing uh, this type of thing that's going on throughout our nation. Uh, at every level in our public schools. Uh, But honestly, it's just so much, it's just almost sickening. I mean, for centuries, these kind of things were hardly spoken of in Western society. I mean, no doubt there have always been uh, those who have, have participated in or practiced these sinful acts. And that's been around from the beginning. But they were considered so reprehensible that an upright moral person not only was not to speak about them, he or she was not even to know what such things involved. But not today. No, today they're written about with explicit detail in newspapers and magazines across the country. Even worse, they're written about in graphic detail in books for grade school uh, students who are taught about these things and discuss them. Not only are we as a society no longer shocked by it, but we've become complacent. As if these things were a natural, upright expression of one's sexuality. But nothing could be further from the truth. Loved ones, this is absolute madness. It's madness. I mean, how do we explain this kind of moral chaos and collapse? How do we explain this mindless perversion of God's created order and the divine institution of marriage? How do we explain such twisted, illogical thinking and the denial of truth, reality, and basic science? I mean, how do we explain such delusional thinking? Well, the passage before us gives us the only explanation for what we see going on in the world around us. And as we've said all along, this passage more than any other explains the moral chaos we're experiencing in our nation at this very moment. And as a nation, we have rejected God and His Word, and therefore we are reaping the consequences. As a nation, we have abandoned God, and He has returned the favor, and we are experiencing, we are under God's wrath of abandonment, And as we've said, his wrath of abandonment is God actively lifting his hand of restraining grace and then actively giving us over to suffer the consequences of our sin. And there is nothing more terrifying than what we see here. When God abandons a person or a society and gives them up to go unrestrained in the direction that they have chosen, Reaping the consequences of their sin at that point, they rarely find their way back to God apart from divine intervention. I mean, this tragic reality has happened to nations, cultures, and denominations. It's happened to countless individuals down through the centuries. And this ought to sober us up. This should sober us to the reality of what we are seeing taking place all around us. This is what's wrong with America. This is what's wrong with the world. As Paul said in verse 18, the wrath of God is, is being revealed or it's, it's perpetually, continually being manifested right now in the present. It's happening now. America is under God's judgment, His wrath of abandonment. And this wrath, Paul said, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So as we've learned, there is truth that God has made known about Himself to mankind that man is suppressing. And this is an action that provokes God to wrath. And in verses 19 to 23, we saw the reasons for God's wrath. God has made Himself known to every man through general revelation. He's made His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature known to every single person, and He's made it uh, so clear that it's, it's clearly seen, it's clearly recognized in creation. But even though God has made Himself known to every man, men by and large have rejected this knowledge. And they refused to acknowledge God. They refused to glorify Him and to honor Him and to give Him thanks. And as a result of their rejection of God, Paul says, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile in their thinking that the sin of rejecting the truth about God inevitably results in a devastating effect upon one's thinking processes. You could say it short-circuits man's rational ability. And he says, their foolish hearts were darkened. So when fallen man puts the truth of God out of his life, he creates a vacuum, and the darkness of spiritual falsehood replaces it. So truth is gone, falsehood and arrogant foolishness rule instead. But this doesn't stop man from thinking that he is wise. As Paul said in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Instead of being wise, the outcome was the total opposite. They became absolute fools who are incapable of any sound thinking about God and the ultimate issues in life. And the inevitable consequence of rejecting the truth about God is devastating. Paul writes in verse 23, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I mean, anyone who rejects the Creator will end up worshiping the creature. It's, this is idolatry. Idolaters worship the things God made or the things God gives rather than God Himself. And this will bring the judgment of God on the unbeliever and the discipline of God in the life of a believer because God will in no way tolerate idolatry. If you're, doing the, if you're following the daily Bible reading calendar, you're going through Ezekiel and... What does that tell you about the way God feels about idolatry? So this is man at his lowest. This is not man ascending to higher realms of spirituality and religion. This is man at his lowest. This is man spiraling down into a lower state of debased thinking and depraved living. But this downward spiral doesn't end with idolatry. No, it gets even worse, as we've learned. It goes even lower. I and mean, when a person defiantly, continually rejects the knowledge of God, he may find himself being given up by God to the sinful desires of their hearts and the devastating consequences of that rebellious, sinful direction they've taken, which leads them to becoming even more deeply engrossed in sin. I mean, this is a judicial abandonment to the consequences of their rebellion. And God will give men and women up to go as far down as they desire to go. And what we have in verses 24 to 32 are the dimensions of the depravity to which unbelieving men and women will go. And what did God give them up to? Well, first of all, as we saw last time, look at verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity or sexual immorality is what it is. So to sexual immorality, to dishonoring, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. I mean, One of the clearest indications of a society or a person in rebellion against God is the rejection of God's guidelines for the use of sex. But that's how it goes in a society where God has abandoned them. Their sinful desire is for sexual immorality and and it comes from within, out of the heart and manifests itself in a dishonoring of the body and all kinds of illicit sexual practices. So they're lustful, they're immoral. Why? Because God gave them up. God gave them over to the consequences of their own sinfulness. Why? Paul tells us in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, which is idolatry. This is really just a restatement of what Paul said in verse 23. So we see that idolatry initiates the sequence. In verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to sexual immorality. Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And as we see now, God again responds in verses 26 and 27 by giving them up, not just to sexual immorality, but to unnatural lusts, unnatural sexual immorality. You see, there is a deadly sequence of events. Mark it. Rejection of God leads to idolatry. And idolatry leads to immorality. And man at last plummets into the grossest perversions imaginable. And this is where societies who have rejected God always end up. It's been the case in every major society throughout history. And we are seeing the same rapidly increasing trend in America. In fact, I read that the 72% of Americans believe that we should accept homosexuality as normal. Eight out of ten Democrats, 58% of Republicans. So much for conservatism. In verses 26 and 27, Paul continues to describe the abandonment by God, pointing out that the next step in the downward spiral is this pursuit of unnatural relationships, which are a perversion of God's design. In verse 26, he deals with lesbianism. Verse 27, male homosexuality. Look at verse 26. Actually, let me read verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We read now in verse 6. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable means disgraceful, degrading, shameful, vile, depraved. It describes the lust that that stirs up or enrages a a person's flesh. So we're not just talking about passions. Paul says these are dishonorable passions. So, this is a downward spiral. This is greater debauchery. I mean, these dishonorable passions can be defined as gross affections, vile desires, perversion, or uh, even inversion. And what do these evil passions produce? Well, notice the second part of verse 6 where Paul defines these dishonorable passions for us. Look at verse 26 For their women exchange the natural relations for those that are contrary. To nature. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and God in his wrath of abandonment responds by giving them up or giving them over to dishonorable passions, which Paul clearly defines as homosexuality. Now at the outset, let me say a couple of things. First of all, we live in a time when the homosexual community has so strongly influenced our godly culture. Our godless culture, not godly, not by any stretch of the imagination, has so strongly influenced our godless culture that if you stand against it and say that it's sin, well, you are immediately labeled as intolerant, unloving, bigoted, a homophobe, etc., etc. And the homosexual community and lobby has very cleverly and, and skillfully made this into a human rights issue so that those who oppose it seem anti-American, you know, anti-civil rights. But God's Word is not ambiguous about homosexuality, not at all. It is clearly sin. And Paul elsewhere includes it in lists of sins, such as 1 Corinthians 6.9, 1 Timothy 1.10. But why does Paul focus on homosexual relations here? Well, one commentator said this, and I agree. He said, probably because it functions as the best illustration of that which is unnatural in the sexual sphere. Idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. To worship corruptible animals and human beings instead of the incorruptible God is to turn the created order upside down. In the sexual sphere, the mirror image of this unnatural choice of idolatry is homosexuality. And that's true. Secondly, second thing I want to say here before we dive into this is that it's important to note that in verses 26 and 27, Paul does not use the usual term for women and men. The usual Greek terms for women and men, like corresponding terms in most languages, implies a a certain dignity. But the Greek words that Paul uses here simply mean female and male. They they, they simply denote gender. And they are elsewhere used in the creation account. It, It seems, as one commentator said, that Paul used these words because he refused to ascribe even an implied dignity to those who degenerate into homosexuality. I mean, his point is that homosexuality for either sex goes against God's intention in creation. In fact, homosexuality so totally moves out of the realm of what is natural that it includes a total throwing off of the revealed will and design of God. Now, looking back at, at verse 26, Paul says, For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The words natural in verse 26 and the opposite term contrary to nature or could be translated unnatural are very important because it explains why this stage is a step further along the downward moral spiral. In fornication and adultery, which are in view in verse 24, are not unnatural sins in the sense that they are not against nature. Certainly they are gross sins because they break the moral law of God. You know, they result in impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies, as Paul says, but they are not unnatural. In fact, they are in one sense quite natural because they are done by using one's body in a natural Uh, though very sinful way. But that's not true with homosexuality because homosexuality is unnatural and it is done by using one's body in an unnatural way that is against nature. In fact, when it comes to homosexuality, the mere physical differences between men and women should convince anyone that practices of this kind are not normal and they're not. They were not meant to be. Paul says these practices are contrary to nature. This kind of sexual activity is unnatural. It is against nature. It is against God and His created order. As one man said, it's a rebellion against marriage and morality that points all the way back to a rebellion against the Creator and His creation. Paul says their women exchange natural relations, could be translated natural function, for those that are contrary to nature. The word translated relations was commonly used of sexual intercourse, and in this context the term could refer to nothing other than that. It can refer to nothing other than intimate sexual relations. So there is no doubt that Paul is referring to unnatural sexual intercourse, unnatural sexual relations, which he clearly defines as homosexuality, specifically lesbianism here in verse 26. Their natural relations and function would be for these women to marry a man and to have intimate sexual re- an intimate sexual relationship with their own husband. And generally speaking, the result of this union would be to produce a family. That is the way God designed the husband-wife relationship to be. But these women, having rejected the knowledge of God, have exchanged the truth for a degrading lie. And therefore God has given them up so that following their own sinful passions and desires, they they trade the natural desire toward men for the unnatural desire for women. They exchange natural relations for unnatural relations. And they are doing something that is utterly opposite the way God made them. And you don't have to be very smart to figure that out. Right? And when a woman has these dishonorable passions for another woman, this is entirely contrary to God's design. And all such lesbian activity is a flagrant violation of God's Word, His will, and His divine plan. You know, in most cultures, down through history, women have been more reluctant than men to become involved either in sexual promiscuity or homosexuality. And so it's interesting that Paul mentions women first. And perhaps he mentions women first to show the extent of debauchery under the wrath of abandonment. Because in most cultures, women are the last to be affected by moral collapse. But what do we see when we look around at our culture, our society? We see lesbianism being promoted. We see it being celebrated. We have lesbians being elevated as cultural icons. You see, what we need to understand is that when homosexuality invades the female gender, it is proof that all virtue is gone. The consistent, willful rejection of God inevitably leads to idolatry, to immorality, and even into the sexual sin and perversion of lesbianism. That's verse 26. And now in verse 27, Paul continues to describe this downward spiral into grosser sexual sins, dealing now with male homosexuality. Look at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul says the men likewise. The expression men likewise could be translated in the same way. And it indicates that male homosexual practice is intended here just as female homosexual practice was intended in verse 26. The same dishonorable passions that led women to engage in unnatural homosexual acts are also at work among men with similar effect. I mean, homosexuality among males, like that among females, is characterized as a departure from nature, from what is natural. There is only one natural sexual relationship the Bible recognizes, and that is between one man and one woman within the confines of the marriage relationship, period. But those given up by God abandon the natural attraction and desire for the opposite gender. Paul says they gave up natural relations with women for what is unnatural. So they have sexual desires, unnatural sexual desires for other men. In fact, Paul says in verse 27, they are consumed or they were consumed... Consumed with passion for one another. The New American Standard says they burned in their desire toward one another. The word passion speaks of an unrelenting craving. A craving especially that refuses to subside unless it's fulfilled. And so this passion rages, creating an unquenchable craving, a a burning lust, an excitement in the mind that creates sensual fantasies in their lustful imagination. And this craving leads to unnatural physical appetites for other men. As one man said, when man forsakes the author of nature, he forsakes the order of nature. And he is consumed with passion for another of the same sex. And what is their unnatural lust produced? We'll look back at verse 27. Men committing shameless acts with men. The word committing means to do that from which something results, to to carry to its ultimate conclusion, to, to work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. And the idea here is that they themselves initiate these indecent acts and and participate in carrying them out until they're finished. And the present tense pictures this as a continuous action, a, a continuous lifestyle, a habitual action. And the word shameless refers to lack of form, disfigurement, deformed, nakedness, shame, indecency, obscenity. And it means to act in defiance of social and moral standards. In the Septuagint, this word uh, is used to refer to something that is considered too private for public exposure, such as one's nakedness. So Paul is telling us that as an inevitable result of of rejecting God and His moral law, these men, in defiance of all social and moral standards, continually commit acts that are shameless, indecent, and obscene with other men. I mean, homosexuality is perverted sex. Males leaving the natural use of females. Females leaving the natural use of males is the basest human inversion of God's intended order. And again, it's an illustration of the extremity of mankind's depravity. Now today, there are many who would have us to believe that homosexuality is normal. You know, it's billed as an alternative lifestyle. But as one man said, homosexuality cannot be understood as an alternative lifestyle, somehow acceptable to God, but rather as a sign of one of the forms of God's wrath, a sign of of one of the forms God's wrath takes when he allows us free reign to continue in our abuse of creation and in our abuse of one another as creatures. Others today would also have us to believe that there's simply no evidence demonstrating that homosexuality or tolerance of it is, is either a symptom or a cause of social decline, decadence, or the fall of civilization. And in response to them, I would say, well, you obviously have not read history, and you certainly have not read, nor would you believe, Romans chapter 1. Because the Bible says it is abnormal. If the Bible says it is abnormal, it is abnormal. I mean, Paul categorizes the whole section under the idea of dishonorable or vile passions, unnatural, unholy, obscene, a perversion of God's intended order. And listen, we need to remember that Paul was living in a culture that openly approved of homosexuality. He didn't write this to a culture that agreed with him. Quite the opposite. I mean, Paul was writing uh, from Corinth, the city where homosexuality was accepted and openly practiced, and he was writing to the church in Rome. And in Roman culture, homosexuality was accepted as part of life for both men and women. For some 200 years, men who openly practiced homosexuality, often with young boys, ruled the Roman Empire. It was said of Julius Caesar that he was every woman's man and every man's woman. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed, approved homosexual prostitution and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was recognized, and even some of the emperors married other men. In fact, at the very time that Paul was writing, Nero was emperor. And Nero took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated, then married him with full ceremony, brought him into the palace with a great procession, and made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man, and Nero was the wife. So Paul didn't write this in the midst of a culture that agreed with him. I mean, the, the exact opposite. But that didn't stop Paul from making the truth clear. I mean, the Bible says it is abnormal, that it is unnatural, that it is sinful, just like any other sexual sin. It's a manifestation of the decadence, the decline, the fallenness, and the utter sinfulness of man. Worse yet, there is an effort on the part of some to defend the legitimacy of homosexual behavior from the Bible. I mean, most common, for example, is the claim that uh, the Bible passages condemning homosexuality in the New Testament are not references to committed, long-term homosexual relationships which these people say are legitimate. They say that these verses in the New Testament really refer to Uh, to uh, uh, promiscuous homosexual relations which are not legitimate. Well, that's absolute and utter nonsense. It's just nonsense. Within the church today, there are also some contemporary apologists for homosexuality who have tried to interpret Romans 1 to mean that only sex conducted against the nature of the individual person is sinful. And here's how that argument goes. It is not unnatural when a homosexual person has homosexual relations. It is only unnatural when heterosexual persons have homosexual relations or when homosexual persons have heterosexual relations. Well, that too is absolute and utter nonsense. And it's totally and completely false. I mean, this text of Scripture cannot in any way, shape, or form rightly be construed to mean anything like that. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the use of the word natural refers to the natural order as God has made it. So to act against the nature means to violate the order which God has established. Well, what is that natural order? Well, it's found in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus affirmed this in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, woe to the man or to the person that separates them. John Stott, commenting on this, said, In other words, God created humankind, male and female. God instituted marriage as a heterosexual union. And what God has thus united, we have no liberty to separate this threefold action of God established that the only context which he intends for the one flesh experience is heterosexual monogamy and that a homosexual partnership, however loving and committed it may claim to be, is against nature and can never be regarded as a legitimate alternative to marriage. And yet the Supreme Court thought they or think they know better they think they know better than god they think they have the power and authority to say what marriage is they do not their decision doesn't change anything it's merely an excuse for people to commit that sinful act homosexual activity is not an alternative lifestyle because it's not normal, it is abnormal, it is not natural, it is against nature. It is a manifestation of the way in which human beings have twisted God's created order into something totally opposite from what God ever intended. And something else that should be said, and that is simply this, that homosexuals are not born that way. I mean, there is absolutely no scientific evidence to date to support that claim, although researchers uh, have desperately been looking for it and, and trying to prove it. Why? Well, because they need an excuse. And you know what? It's a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing that homosexuals are allowed to believe the lie that this is a biological condition which they cannot help, but to which they should adjust. And even churches are falling into this trap and going along with this kind of deceit. Homosexuality is not a biological condition that people are born with. Homosexuality also is not a sickness. It's a sin. The Bible is very clear on that issue. And God literally destroyed an entire civilization in Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of homosexuality. And the Bible is clear. It's sin. You want a few verses? Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And then in Galatians 5.19-21, through 21, Paul lists... Uh, uh, a, a list of things that those who do do them will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of them is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, which covers homosexuality. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5, 3 to 5. He lists sexual immorality and all impurity. Those people, he says, along with these, commit these other sins, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. You say, well, he didn't mention, he didn't specifically say homosexuality. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you'd like one more, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Homosexuality is not a sickness. The Bible is very clear that it's sin. And I would suggest to you this morning that uh, the most cruel and inhumane thing that we can do to homosexuals is to deny that his or her problem is one of sin. Because medical science and psychiatry have no hope for the homosexual. None. Zero. But you see, Jesus Christ died that we might be freed from sin. And so if homosexuality is sin, and it is, then loved ones, there is a sure solution. And so the fact that homosexuality is a sin ought to be encouraging because that means there's a remedy for sin, whereas many sicknesses have absolutely no cure. And so the Word of God makes very clear that homosexuality is a natural abnormal, it is not an alternative lifestyle, it is not a biological condition one is born with, it is not a sickness, it is sin. It is evidence of the wrath of God on sin. But that doesn't stop our society from trying to convince us to liberalize our thinking concerning homosexuality. And worse yet, this is being done under the banner of Christianity, of being a a loving, accepting, inclusive Christian. But Paul, in no uncertain terms, has identified homosexuality as sin. And he has also implied that the predominance of homosexuality in any society is a sign of the present uh, wrath, the outworking of God's present wrath of abandonment. And historically, historically, it is a sure sign of a dying society. I mean, as I look around at our society, I mean, what we're seeing is uh, a society that's in its death throes. It's in the ER and it's flatlined. And it's just about dead. One man said, whenever men turn away from God, terrible things begin to happen in society. Long-held standards disappear. Things once considered incredible now become commonplace. Evil no longer seems evil. The basic distinctions between male and female are obliterated. No one knows the difference between right and wrong. In such an atmosphere, homosexuality is first tolerated, then accepted, then praised, and finally enshrined as the ultimate freedom. And as I just said, when a society gets to that point, it's in its death throes. It really is. And the only thing that will bring it back to life is a great work of God's Holy Spirit in reformation and revival. So we're not without hope. But homosexuality, it's a vile sin because it's an utter inversion of uh, the order that God designed. It destroys everything uh, the evil in it is, is inherent in its consequences. I mean, it literally destroys those who are involved. Look back at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The New Living Translation has it, they suffered within themselves the penalty they so richly deserved. So they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see, homosexuality has within itself a penalty. And this speaks of the self-destructive nature of sin. It carries within itself its own penalty. And people involved in this sin, I mean, they're, they're, first of all, they're enslaved, they're in bondage. And they're, they're eaten up by guilt and pain and, and dissatisfaction and emptiness and despair and depression, anxiety. There's uh, large amounts of, of drug addiction. People in this lifestyle experience an extremely high rate of sexual violence and assault. I mean, 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner, compared to 35% of straight women. 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner, compared to 29% of straight men. 40% of gay men and 47% of bisexual men have experienced sexual violence other than rape. The 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey found that 47% of transgender people are sexually assaulted at some point in their life. The suicide rate among homosexuals is higher than that of heterosexuals. I mean, studies have, been, have found that uh, LGBT youth attempt suicide more than three times more frequently than their heterosexual counterparts. A Canadian study estimated that the risk of suicide among LGBT youth is 14 times higher than for heterosexual youth. I mean, the statistics are, are just staggering. Staggering they have a much higher rate of suicide. Of transgenders, between 30 to 45 percent have attempted suicide. Sometimes it's the penalty of disease, you know, which is the, is the consequence of violating nature's order. And so someone always asks, is AIDS God's judgment on homosexuality? Well, if you mean that every person who has AIDS got it from homosexual sin, the answer is no, because babies get it from their mothers, and patients get it from tainted blood transfusions and may pass it on to a spouse or other family member innocently before knowing they have it. But Paul wasn't specifically speaking of AIDS. He had never heard of AIDS. But AIDS is certainly a frightening evidence of that fatal promise and the fact of the matter is if there were no sexual promiscuity especially homosexuality there would be virtually no AIDS. So there is an obvious direct correspondence between practicing homosexuality and AIDS and so I suppose in that sense it is God's judgment against that sin. You see the term gay it's wishful thinking. It's nothing but wishful thinking. It it sends a message that there's something essentially happy and, and carefree about the homosexual lifestyle, which there is not. Contrary to the word gay, homosexuals are disproportionately unhappy people, again, because they're in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to sexual sin. I mean, homosexuality, while perhaps not the most hurtful of sins, as, say, compared to murder, is certainly the ultimate rebellion in arrogance. It's it's certainly the ultimate in arrogance and sinful rebellion against the order of God. And it's frightening. It is really frightening to consider what happened to the Roman Empire after reaching a point of immorality which championed homosexuality? You know, not tolerated, but championed. And then to look at our culture, which has devolved into a similar place morally. And so here in verses 26 and 27, as Paul continues to describe God's wrath of abandonment, his lifting of his hand of restraining grace and giving men up to the consequences of their sin, he singles out homosexuality because it is so obviously unnatural and therefore automatically underlines the depth of depravity to which sin will take mankind. And so, what does this mean to us? Well, first of all, as we've seen, sexual immorality, especially homosexuality, reveals to us the depths of our society's depravity. You know, I think perhaps because we live in the area we live in, more rural, more conservative, um, that we don't understand how widespread this is, how prevalent this is. It's very prevalent in our society. So based on what we see, according to the Word of God, uh, our culture, again, is on its deathbed. And if if we're believers, this should encourage us to draw close to Christ, to draw close to Him, to become more like Him, And to be useful to Him. You know, so that we're really living what we say we believe. So that we might be salt and light and have an influence for Christ in our culture. You know, have an influence in this decaying, dying culture. And second, this, this passage in this particular issue should drive home the fact that our only hope is Christ and Christ alone. Listen, Jesus is the answer, not the Republican Party or any political party for that matter, not conservatism. I mean, most evangelical Christians are conservative, but not all conservatives are Christians. And according to to what I I, I read and heard just the other day, I mean, the conservative party is, is making a big change. They want to become more inclusive. They want to be more of a big tent. And so, you know, conservatism has in the past stood for a traditional marriage between one man, one woman. But that may be on its way out. And so morally, it'll be no different than the other party. They may have a little better foreign relations program, be a little more uh, fiscally responsible, although that doesn't appear to be the case from what we've seen over the last few weeks. Spinelessness. Men afraid to do what's right. Mitch McConnell being delighted with the package that was passed. Loved ones, let's don't ever make the mistake of confusing being a Republican or, or conservatism with biblical Christianity. I mean, what we need in this country more than we need political change, which we surely need. But what we need in this country more than political change is a great work of God's Spirit. We need revival. We need reformation and revival. Because this and this alone is the only thing that is going to change the course of our nation. I mean, as a nation, we've rejected God and His Word. We have believed the lie. We're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And God has given us up as a nation to reap the consequences of our sin. And this should just create a, a great sense of urgency in us about proclaiming the gospel. Because it's getting worse and worse. And as people continue to reject God and continue to reject the gospel, their hearts are getting a little harder each time a little harder, a little harder, and they're getting farther and farther and farther away from God. That's why it's important that we live out the gospel and and proclaim the gospel now. Because the only hope for this or any other society is to hear the Word of God and respond, to hear the gospel and to obey it. I mean, this is the only hope for any nation and for any individual. Lastly, The good news in all of this is that Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath to come and from the power and penalty of our sins. And according to Scripture, homosexuality, like adultery, is not a condition, but it's an act. It's a sinful practice, which can become a way of life. But because homosexuality, like adultery, is learned behavior into which men and women with sinful natures are are prone to wander, homosexuality can be forgiven in Christ. And the pattern can be broken and abandoned, and in its place, holy sexuality can be established by the Holy Spirit. remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Do you not know, and I read part of this earlier, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty clear, pretty straightforward. And then Paul says in the next verse, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. All those types of people were in that church. Paul says, such were some of you, but, but he says, you were washed, you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I May mean, some of you here this morning perhaps were homosexuals or lesbians or adulterers, fornicators, drunks, swindlers, and the like but as Paul said you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps someone is here this morning who is presently involved in these sins you're presently involved in either lesbianism or homosexuality well listen i want you to understand it's it is not a sickness It's not something you were born with. It's not an alternative lifestyle. But rather, it's a sin. And that should be encouraging because that means there's a remedy for your sin. There's freedom from your sin. Homosexuality is a sin for which one can be forgiven. And you know, sometimes in the church, people have treated this like it's the unforgivable sin. It is not. Homosexuality is a sin for which one can be forgiven. And the good news is that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is offering to you today the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. If you will acknowledge your sin, confess it to him, and ask him to save you, As sure as I'm standing here before you, he will forgive your sin, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, save you, adopt you into his family. But you need to trust in Christ and in him alone. He is your only hope of salvation because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And So it's not too late. It's never too late. And until Jesus comes, we just need to keep proclaiming his word so that those who are under his present wrath of abandonment might be saved so that they can escape his final and eternal wrath. Amen. Of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.